Shopify Masters is powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. We actually said that they had fulfilled it, sent us some tracking numbers. We passed them on to our customers. They said they were going to go active in like two days or something. And then we found out that those tracking numbers were not real. Hey, my name is Felix. I'm the host of Shopify Masters. Each week, we learn the keys to success from e-commerce experts and entrepreneurs like you. In this episode, you'll learn how to earn the respect of large luxury brand manufacturers when you're just starting out, how to work with a quality control agency to inspect the products for you, and how to test your Kickstarter campaign before launching. Today, I'm joined by Roman and Jen from Linear. Linear sells minimalist goods made with the finest natural materials and was started in 2014 and currently based out of Florence, Italy. Welcome Roman and Jen. How are you today? We're good. Thank you so much for having us on. Yeah, it's great to be here. Yeah, excited to have you on. So yeah, tell us a bit more about these uh, minimalist goods that you sell and what and I know you also have a, a Kickstarter that's going on right now. So talk to us a little bit more about the products that you sell right now and also what you're launching uh, currently. Oh, great question. Yeah, so we started our business roughly two and a half years ago. And we sell high quality minimalist goods. We started out with leather bags for men, and then we added some for women. And then last year, we launched some really nice watches too, for both men and women. Three days ago, or a couple of days ago, we launched another Kickstarter campaign uh, for our new collection of bags, both for men and women. The exciting part is that we just introduced canvas bags and linen bags. So the bags made out of Italian fabrics, and they're really nice. So you should definitely go check them out. Very cool. So, what are your backgrounds? How do you get into creating products like this? Uh, well, I used to be a management consultant. Um, I didn't have any formal design training, but um, I was always—I've always been interested in design. I mean, same goes for Roman. Um, and Roman, I mean, you can. Yeah, uh, I spent uh, the past couple of years in e-commerce. I work for a, co- a company called Rocket Infinite, but as Jen said, you know, we both share the passion for design. I said design in, in Oslo, Norway, where I grew up uh, many, many years ago in high school, actually. Um, so there's always been like a lingering passion for design between both Jen and I. So, um, yeah. We started Linear because we wanted to make products that we were looking for that we couldn't find in the market, um, namely really high quality products that we knew would last for years and years. Um, and that were made with really high quality materials. Um, and it was just really hard to find um, bags in particular, like um, a laptop bag made up really made out of really high quality leather, uh, made to last and and didn't have this like ugly, flashy logo on it. So we just set out to make one ourselves, launched it on Indiegogo, and that was the birth of the brand actually. Uh, we had an Indiegogo campaign late 2014 kind of took off we we raised 144,000 US during that campaign uh for those bags and and we've just been rolling on ever since mm. now you 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 like you said you you launched the the first product the 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 bag on uh Indiegogo and since then it seems like you've had three campaigns on Kickstarter what made you decide to go with Indiegogo with with your first uh kick crowdfund uh, crowdfunding campaign that's a good question. I think it was just uh, we we knew people there, so that made a huge difference. Um, you Their know, customer service was really excellent. Um, yeah, when we were just getting started, I mean, still is today. <laughs> um, but that that gave us a certain level of comfort that we would have our questions answered um, when we're running our campaign. Yeah. So the the first Kickstarter campaign that you ran, it appears to be was it the watch? Is that correct? Uh, the first Kickstarter campaign we ran was actually. A follow-up campaign to to the Indiegogo one uh, for women's bags. So we launched with men's bags in Indiegogo. Then we heard from a lot of women who wanted bags. We we launched a women's collection, and that was the first Kickstarter campaign. And then we followed up with a watch campaign on Kickstarter, uh, which did close to a million dollars in pre-orders. 
which is pretty crazy. Yes, very impressive. So when you were deciding to go with the very first crowdfunding campaign, let's talk about the Indiegogo one uh, for the bags. What, what kind of I guess, experience did you have in creating something like this? Were you guys ready ready to to take this right into manufacturing when you when you launched it, or you, were you still learning the process of what needed to be done to create a product like this? Oh yeah, great question. Um, yeah, we we you know we firmly having backed many Kickstarter campaigns prior to actually launching one ourselves or an Indiegogo campaign. We we knew that we had to have all the manufacturing pieces in place prior to launching. Um, so we lined everything up before uh, pushing launch, and you know we're quite proud of saying that you know the first campaign was delivered within the time frame of what we promised. Uh, and, uh, and, and yeah, so, so we had everything lined up, uh, from the manufacturing standpoint. In terms of experience between the two of us, I guess we had some manufacturing experience from, you know, um, uh, from work, at least where I worked before. I was working at a fashion e-commerce startup and we had some private label brands. So yeah, I had some, you know, fundamental understandings of, you know, how purchase orders work, you know, the payment terms of factories, lead times and, you know, somewhat how to manage them but there was no like tangible production experience uh whatsoever mm-hmm. which i think share with many of the people we've interviewed on this podcast right uh, what surprises did you find along the way what kind of surprising challenges did you encounter that maybe you didn't expect on the uh, on the outset uh, with your very first crowdfunding campaign yeah so i think the struggles that we had with our first crowdfunding campaign really came down to working with the right partners um well one challenge we had, which wasn't actually a challenge after we solved it, was finding the right uh, manufacturer to work with, specifically because we we're working with, uh, we wanted to make luxury quality products. Um, the manufacturers generally tended to be more wary of us than would, uh, I guess, uh, manufacturers making mid-market or low-quality products, just because we're two people with no tangible production experience, and we didn't come from luxury brands, and the people that they deal with are at a totally different level. Um from just like two young punky people like trying to start a startup. Yeah. Um, so eventually we, we managed to convince uh, this excellent factory to work with us. Um, and so, so that was solved. But um, a big problem that we had uh, apart from that was with fulfillment. Um, so actually after our first Kickstarter campaign uh, for the women's bags, um, our fulfillment partner in Hong Kong um, just totally messed up. They were supposed to send out all of our parcels within five days. Um, and it was uh, around a thousand parcels. So it was like, it sounds like a lot of orders, but any a kind of decent size operation should definitely be able to handle a thousand orders within five days, if not fewer. Um, but for whatever organizational reasons, they didn't ship out all of our parcels until 45 days later. They shipped out like a couple hundred the first few days. And then we just had no visibility into what was going on. We weren't physically in Hong Kong because we were dealing with production somewhere else um, at the time. And it was just, it was just so, so awful. Um, so, I mean, I worst case was that they actually said that they had fulfilled it, sent us some tracking numbers. We passed them on to our customers. They said they were going to go active in like two days or something. And then we found out that those tracking numbers were not real. So suddenly we just had like a thousand customers hammering at us. And that was back when like Jen was still in a full-time job. Like we were taking turns building this business. So Jen was like working in the evenings on linear and like, it was just like, oh my God, what a nightmare. Um, so, um, yeah, that almost put an end to the business. We were just like, after that incident, kind of looked at each other and we we're like, oh my God, do we really want to do this? And, you know, after surviving that incident, we were just like, okay, there's only one way. It's like, and it's up. Um, <laughs> yeah. So what, what actually ended up happening? They did they eventually just ship it out. It was just super delayed, or what, what happened? Yeah, the CEO and COO were like ignoring our phone calls, so we eventually had to call their investor to go down to the warehouse and wow. find out what was going on. Yeah. Um. The the parcels eventually did go out, but it took a huge toll on us, like health wise, um, mm-hmm. because we were just so stressed out from this. Um. And of course, it was an awful experience for our customers. Um. And I think it really put us back. Um, it set us back in our trajectory. Yeah, definitely. Um, um, so I guess the lesson from that is just choose your partners very carefully. Ask for references. Um, micromanage them. Don't trust them until they've earned your trust. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, so let's talk about that, choosing a partner specifically for the manufacturing and, and fulfillment that, that you ended up uh, going with. Uh, like you mentioned before, you were just you know two people without any experience in this industry that wanted to create high-quality products. And like you're saying, it's they become wary because you're not an established brand, you don't have the track record. How did you get the, you know, I guess, the, the reverse of your situation? How did you get the credibility or get earn their respect for them to start working? Working with with you when you were just getting started. Well, the, the the first thing we have to do is find them, right? And like, kind of identify uh, the pockets of where these manufacturers would um, would be. And um, the way we did that was by attending trade fairs first. So there are like a couple of big ones for our industry, uh, for for the bag bag industry, like leather goods uh, industry. Uh, one is in Milan, and another one is in Hong Kong. We proactively attended. Both of those, plus another one in Paris, actually, Jen flew out to attend that one. Um, so we, we started with attending those. And, and by attending them, we we're able to kind of identify um, who were doing um, the top tier quality level that we were looking for. And then going on about convincing them, we simply just, you know, meeting them in person. I think a lot of founders we talk to have a tendency just emailing a bunch of random suppliers, hoping to hear back from them. And building something virtually, but you know, this is an industry that existed long before the the internet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of suppliers are, you know, third generation, fourth generation, and uh, you know, their email addresses often end with at gmail.com. You know, um, they don't present themselves the best uh, online because they don't need to because they're right. fully booked by other luxury brands um, that have sustained them for you know decades. So, you know, uh, first step, identify them, attend trade fairs, identify the trade fairs for your industry, your your segment, uh, then then meet with them in person, you know, dress nicely. I think a lot of people kind of underestimate that, you know, don't wear flip flops and a t-shirt, um, you know, dress as if you are presenting to someone who um, has been in business for the last 40 years. Uh, make sure that you um, convey your brand vision very clearly. Uh, you know, if quality is really important to you, which it is for us, you start with that instead of talking too much about cost. Uh, you talk about, you know, what kind of quality you want to achieve with your products. Um, and then, you know, it's just going back to basics, you know, nurture that relationship by following up with emails, um, sharing your latest, you know, lookbook photos, um, you know, whatever progress you're making as a brand. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you mentioned that when you do identify some partners that you want to work with, you still have to do your own due diligence, your own and, and micromanage, as you're saying, Jen. Now, when it comes to, uh, I guess, finding the references and identifying which partners to go with at, at first, how, what do you do with these references? Like, once you get them, like, how do you make? How do you work with the references to make sure that the the partner that you you're thinking about picking is going to be a good fit for your business? Yeah, I think it's actually um, doesn't have to be too complicated. Um, I think it's asking other other people who have worked with them, you know, what what has your experience been? What kinds of challenges have you dealt with? Like, what do you think the limitations are of, of the manufacturer? Um, and, and just with some very basic questions, you can get a lot of good information. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that, that you look out for that's like a make or break uh, for when you pick your, your partners? Hmm. Mm, that's a very good question, actually. Especially with references, like if you're asking them, you know, it seems like if you do ask these manufacturers or fulfillment companies, can we have a list of references? They'll probably pick the people that are, you know, of course, they're going to speak favorably about them. So how do you, I guess, get the, the, I guess, the juicy, not dirt necessarily, but the as unbiased information as possible from them so that you can make an informed decision? Yeah, I mean, with their man, watch manufacturer, like for our watches, like I went out and uh, we, we divide and conquer, right? So I went out and like QC'd every single watch. I don't know how many we sold on the Kickstarter campaign. Like QC, he means did quality uh, Quality control. control. Sorry, I'm using acronyms. I hate acronyms. <laughs> yeah, so I quality controlled every single watch myself with a team of professionals. We, we hired like people who specialize in quality control of watches, luxury watches and, you know, um, high quality watches, like the ones we make. Um, and... That took three days because we ordered like thousands and thousands of them. So I was spending three days at the factory 
And, uh, you know, during that time, I met a lot of their clients. And of course, this is not prior to engaging the factory, uh, which is a bit, I'm not really answering your question, but at least, you know, meeting a lot of their clients is the way to go about it. And if they give you two, three references and you're not happy with those conversations, do feel comfortable going back to them and saying, I want to talk to more people. I'm not just completely convinced with uh, the people I've talked to. And we've done that in the past. And, um, you know, it's just having an open, open conversation and just saying, you know, I need, I need to be more convinced that you, you're the right partner for us. Mm-hmm. And with micromanaging, how do you, I guess, what's important to, to pay close attention to when you are, are trying to focus on a specific area of the manufacturing or fulfillment to make sure it's done right? What was important for you guys to, I guess, sort of micromanage in this, in this process? Uh, with production, especially, I think it's, it's a bit tricky because often your manufacturer will be working on something for a few months before they show you the final product. And one, you can prevent a lot of very nasty surprises if you go and visit them during production. And even if you don't know exactly how everything is being done, um, because like, how could, how could anybody expect that? Um, how could any expect that anybody expect that you know how, how the whole manufacturing process works? Mm-hmm. If you just go and be smart and ask questions and observe, um, that'll take you really far because you, you might be able to catch some really silly things that people are doing. Um, before, before it like destroys all of your materials or something, um, and yeah, and ju- and just prevent something, prevent something worse from happening. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. Yeah, and <laughs> Jen, you had like a full time job when you guys were do were doing this. How how were you able to find the time to visit the the manufacturers to make sure that they weren't uh, you know doing things that you weren't didn't want them to do? Taking vacation time from uh. work. Yeah, that's basically the first year Jen was working on it. And I was in a full-time job. And like literally, we would fly out to our factory during the weekends. Wow. Um, do a bunch of stuff, then fly back and be back at work on Monday and then just work on it. And it was, that's really how you do it. Uh, unfortunately, there's no like easy way out. Um, during production, going back to your earlier question, I would also, adding to what Jen said, I would just hire experts too to help with the uh, quality control, like just find whoever it is in your industry. Um, it's really easy to find. You just go to the trade fair of your industry. Um, within those trade fairs, there are like a subsection of just quality control agencies that, are, that kind of market themselves at these trade fairs. Reach out to them, ask them all the, there, there are no stupid questions. Just ask them, you know, what could go wrong? Tell me a little bit about process. Talk to all of them. Whoever gives you the most insight, you should probably engage and and spend a little bit of money on that. Mm, so, yeah, t- talk to us a little bit more about this. I think that this is an avenue that maybe a lot of manu- a lot of uh, entrepreneurs don't don't invest in just yet, especially if they aren't creating high quality products or aren't creating products that are complicated. But it does make sense once you start growing up, going up in scale, and trying to create a very high quality product like yours. Uh, what what do you what does the quality control agency do for you? How, how do you work with them? Yeah, really good question. Yeah, so. Often there's like different steps to manufacturing. So there might be like kind of like sourcing the raw material that goes into the product, uh, preparing that raw material, assembling it, and then like post-assembly. And you kind of identify all these processes into making your final product. And then you can engage them to kind of control different parts of that process. And as Jen said, the the best thing to do is actually to do the first production run yourself with the agency uh, or without the agency if you can't afford them and you're really tiny and your production run is really small and you don't have a $1 million campaign. You can completely understand that this cost would be really high. Um, but in any case, like you should try to identify these process steps and then you know observe and attend all of them to trial production. And, and if you do that, you should be fine. Because you just have to get, apply common sense. It's not rocket science uh, making products. It's just a lot of common sense and requires a lot of patience. Mm-hmm. And the, do these uh, quality control agency agents, do they, when they start working with you, can they re- can you work with them remotely where they're going over there to visit the, the manufacturers themselves? Like, how do they, uh, what, what do they take off your hands eventually? Yeah, uh, great question. So, with the uh, watch um, quality control company, 
Um, how we started out was that they made a list of all of the manufacturing steps um, and the checks that they usually do uh, with other kind of like watch companies when they're when they're managing their production. Um, and we went through the list with them one by one and we identified areas, identified things where we thought that where things weren't relevant to us or where we thought they uh, we needed to put a bit more attention um, and then from there, I mean, Roman went out with them the first time and he was just watching how they were doing all of the tests. Eventually, we added some more tests uh, just to add some because of some issues that we identified uh, during production. Uh, but yeah, it was it's just like being very clear about what the expectations are. And then from from then on, now we trust our watch um, QC agency to go out to the factory without us. And our, on our manufacturer, too. Right. So it's just like. It's really important that this conversation is not like you're, you're taking a stick against your manufacturer because at the end of the day, they also need to make money and they're your partner. And, you know, everybody loses if a product comes out bad. Yeah, exactly. Uh, especially a manufacturer um, because their margins are are small. Um, so, um, yeah, it's just having an open conversation. Once you've done it once, you can you can definitely do it remotely. That's not not an issue. To just give you some context, like our QC agency can also help quality control the labeling by the factory. So when they're packing our watches into these boxes, you know, ensuring that they're labeled correctly and these things can also be done. So it's like a huge relief and one way to work your way closer to uh, doing things more efficiently. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that, of course, having the, the million dollar you know, Kickstarter campaign helps you fund a project like this, helps you fund a uh, hiring agency like this. Can you give an idea? You don't have to give us your 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 cost, but an idea of what budget levels are you talking about before it even makes sense to hire a quality control agent? Are you talking about you know thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars to hire someone to to help you out with this? They're charged by the day, so. Like um, for something really, really high quality, uh, like what we do, you, you really need like experienced people. So they're naturally going to be more expensive than if you're accusing like, I don't know, like a $50 clothing apparel, you know, something you're selling for like $50 and you're making for $10 or something like you don't need really experts. Um, so it's kind of hard for me to answer that question, but the way they bill you is definitely with day rates and, and man hours. And we're not talking crazy numbers here. Uh, it's not that crazy. It would be more like the, the real expense is flying out in your time, I think. Yeah. Another thing I'll add is that with the quality control process, and you can choose what level of, yeah. um, I guess, what quantity of products you have checked. Uh, for us, we were really, really kind of paranoid about our first watch production run. So we actually checked every single unit. Um, but that's quite unusual, I think, in, in the no, industry. No like doesn't. often they'll have um, something called AQL 2.5. Um, you can Google it because I can't, I, I wouldn't be able to <laughs> explain it very concisely right now. But basically there are some rules regarding how, what percent of um, products to take off the production line to check. And if a certain percentage of them meet or, or fail the quality check, then you, you take more out of the batch to check. Yeah. So like when we did a hundred percent check, that was like the factory said, like, no one has done this in like 10 years, uh, blah, blah, blah. The QC agency was also like, this is like really excessive, even though they would earn money on us doing it. Uh, but yeah, Jen said we were kind of like paranoid and we just wanted to make sure everything was done to the T. Um, so, um, yeah, you, th there are ways you can go about it to reduce your costs, um, especially if you're small and you don't have a mega campaign. There's definitely ways yeah, around but, it. But generally, I think if you're trying to build a brand for the long run, I think it's a really great idea to get a QC agency in at the beginning. It doesn't have to be a 100% check. Um, it could be just a small percentage of the units that you check, but you will learn so much. Um, yeah, exactly. And it, I think it, it's, it's really healthy for You'll the long-term success of, you, your, of yeah. your business. You'll save so much money in the long term just doing this. Honestly, mm -hmm. like, it's just like it's a small investment up front, but then like it's kind of like, a manufacturing MBA, you just learn all these things about the category you're in very quickly from experts. And you sleep better at night, honestly. Like when we ship out a watch, you know, we're getting a couple of orders now during the podcast, I was looking at it, and there's like zero anxiety in me because I just like <laughs> feel super confident yeah. about the product. I'm just like, I've looked at this product myself. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, totally worth it. When you price your product, you know, let's say you're launching a Kickstarter campaign. 
a lot of founders just get caught up in like manufacturing costs, shipping costs, and packaging costs. And then they're like, okay, the rest is like my margin. Um, and I think that's a really dangerous thing to do. You should definitely just like factor in, um, factor in this like quality control costs and defectives if you have them, because you're going to have a higher defective ratio if you don't do quality control. Um, and you know, uh, factor that into. Mm-hmm. Now, nowadays, when you are running or working with a quality control agency, are there different, uh, I guess, le- level percentages for how many products they're checking, or does it vary by industry? What well, what's like a good benchmark for someone that's getting started to to tell their QC agency to, to check? I think it varies by industry. Uh, yeah. I'm not too familiar with what other industries do, but gen- like if you talk to the QC agency, they'd be able to tell you what. Yeah. other clients similar to you would, um, mm-hmm. would yeah and then also they could kind of like depending on your specs if you're doing something i guess our specs are really really at the top range of the spectrum for our watches uh if we're going to talk about that like our uh, last qc experience um so you know they could kind of give us a ballpark idea of like what we would expect in defectives etc we had like an open conversation about that um so yeah, there's no set, nothing set in stone. To be sure. Honest. Now you, when you work with them, you tell them these are the things that are important to us. You give them your spec. Once they go and check out the, the factory, check out the products, what do they deliver to you at the end of the day? That's a really good question. You get like a report. Um, so the report uh, tells you like a quick executive summary. Um, you know, we QC like 10,000 watches or whatever. And then it has the signature and stamp from the factory, the QC manager at the factory and uh, your agency um, and kind of verifies what time slots they were at the factory uh, actually conducting the quality control. And then right below that, they give you a breakdown of um, the issues uh, in detail and put them in different buckets. And they take photos. And they take photos Mm. for each with examples, tangible examples, um, and kind of like highlight them for you. Mm-hmm. And can you, can you give us an example of some kind, some kind of action that you've taken based off of a, a report that you've uh, gotten either for uh, an existing production run or something in the past? Yeah, actually, we, we didn't really have any quality control issues with uh, watches. What, what did we have? We had like, we didn't have any issues in the end. Like, you know, um, so there's no like tangible things. There's like, we had like one issue with the packaging that it was peeling because it didn't have enough time to dry after being the logo being printed on. But that was like 60 out of 10,000 boxes, which was nothing. Uh, we didn't really have any issues beyond that. And they just came up with a suggestion and it was sold. So like now they're just like pristine and beautiful. And we send out, you know, really nice packages in the end, which is kind of nice. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned that they, they, of course, charge by the the day. Do you have control, or do you not do you have control? But do you have to coordinate which days they they go there for things like labeling or production? Like, how is it? How do you actually coordinate the entire uh, inspection with the manufacturer and the agency? Yeah, so uh, you get like that. So you decide on those like steps you want to QC. So we did a hundred percent QC of all of our watches. So there were like three, three big steps in our process. So, you know, you ask the production manager at the factory, you know, when are you doing these three things? You CC your agency, um, and then they just coordinate directly, actually. So it's, it's really, um, an easy hands up process. Um, and, uh, yeah. That's that's basically what you do. Uh, Got it. Yeah, I guess they have a lot of experience already doing all of this. Yeah, exactly. They know exactly you, how yeah. many how many days it will take. You know, when we I think our first production run, first delivery was ten thousand watches. They knew exactly how many days it would take, and yeah, um, there were there were there was there was zero confusion. Uh, now, for a, a high quality product like this, the, the materials, of course, play a huge role. Talk to us about the the sourcing of of the material. How do you go about sourcing the material for you know the different products that you've released? Yeah, great question. So um, we have two categories on our site right now, soon three actually. So we have our leather bags, then we have our watches, and our current Kickstarter campaign has um, leather bags, but also some bags made out of um, Italian fabrics. So we we're, we're doing this into from from Florence, Italy, 
Uh, and we moved here just because we wanted to be closer to our supply chain and because our tanneries and our um, canvas suppliers are, you know, a 40 minute to an hour drive away from where we live. Um, now, uh, for our bags, the materials are a substantial amount uh, of our manufacturing cost, um, and they are extremely important for you know uh, the end product. I mean, they are for the watches too, but for the bags, it's just like um, we're doing something very, very unique um, uh, because we use vegetable tan leather. You can read about it on our website. Um, so we are very much involved in the sourcing. We actually split uh, the sourcing of the ma material and the actual manufacturing. So we procure all the material ourselves and then send it to the factory. And the reason we do that is just because we want full transparency and full quality control of the, of the, of the materials going into our bags. And that's number one. Number two. We want a very agile supply chain because our growth has been pretty insane. Uh, we've gone from like a Kickstarter campaign of $150,000 to a million dollars for our, our watches. And knowing that, you know, no, now having launched this latest campaign, we did $125,000 in our first day of launch. So we just wanted to make sure that we had a supply chain where we could scale up with several factories if needed in case this campaign exploded um, and, and ensure that we deliver a high quality product on time. Um, so that's for the bags. Yeah, and that said, it is possible to ask the factory to source all of the materials from you. Like they have a lot of relationships from their years and years of manufacturing. Um, but for us, we just really wanted to have a lot of control over our, our materials because, I mean, our leather is, we use this really nice vegetable tan leather. It's like two, two to three times the cost of like normal leather. And so mm -hmm. it's like we could leave, if, if the factory were, procuring the leather from us uh, for us um they would be doing the qc um and then we would still want to qc on top of that just because like the leather is so important to the bags um and so it was just easier for us to kind of separate that out and and manage that purchase ourselves mm. now when you did move into creating the watches with the very successful kickstarter campaign almost a million dollars raised you're moving into an area where it's no longer just the the, the leather that you have experience in creating you're now creating essentially a product that has moving parts to it what what difficulties came up what challenges i guess came up when you moved from creating the bags now to 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 watches the bags really made life easier for us. Like we had two really strong campaigns. Like, so we had 140,000 and I think close to 400,000 for the women's bags or 370,000, I think at the time. And just having those two things, uh, in our pocket and, and you know, ensure that, you know, finding a good watch supplier was kind of like a breeze compared to the first time around because mm -hmm. people were eager to work with uh, a growing brand, right? Uh, so it made things a lot easier than, than we would have thought because we could just, we didn't spend much time convincing someone yeah. to work I with I mean, us. we just had to show them our crowdfunding, our like Kickstarter campaign page, yeah. and they would see that we have this public figure of that like we a sales That we present ourselves figure, well, yeah. et cetera. So yeah, it was, just, it was just a lot easier. So I don't know how to answer that question actually. In that uh, what sense. kinds of challenges, let's see. Yeah. I guess we would have to de deal with more vendors. That was one challenge, but the way we solved that was by getting a QC, a quality control agency involved to help us um, ensure that the product was well made well uh, as we were scaling up production for, with both vendors. Um, so yeah, that's how we dealt with that. That was the only real challenge, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds like your experience in launching other products certainly helped you gear up for a, a slightly more complicated product uh, like the watches. Um, now, you you obviously have created a luxury brand uh, around with these luxury products. I think one of the things that people see all the time when they look at luxury brands is that, oh, you know, it's easy for them to kind of slap on a high ticket price and push out these items. But then there's a lot of, lot of marketing, a lot of branding legwork that needs to be done early early on to to justify people to to take the risk you know for with a new brand to pay the the, the high ticket price uh, prices essentially for luxury products what goes into marketing and branding products to to make it appear as a not appear but to make it a luxury brand compared to you know mid-tier or of course a lower tier brand 
I think a lot of it is in the imagery and the storytelling. Um, it's also some element of the customer experience that you have to make feel premium. Um, but with imagery and storytelling, I mean, there's a there's de- there's a lot of work that goes goes on behind the scenes. Sure. Uh, well, I can I kind of want to actually go off of what, what you're saying here. So storytelling and and the imagery. So let's start with the storytelling aspect of it. What is what does that mean to you? How do you how do you tell a story behind uh, behind your brand? I think it's having a vision that you aspire to yourself mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. thinking about how to kind of communicate this through imagery um, without being too explicit. And I think that's the key to luxury um, subtlety, mm-hmm. uh, communicating something where people don't realize kind of, they don't realize it at first glance, but it's something that like kind of gets you in your stomach. Um, and, you, and you don't understand. And you clearly <laughs> see it right away. You clearly see it right away. Yeah. Like one thing, you know, with our last shoot for the the campaign we're running right now for a new collection, you know, the um, the model is, you know, not holding the bag in an unnatural way that you would see in like a Louis Vuitton or Prada ad where the bag is on the table and like the model's pinky finger is barely touching it and it just, you know, the bag is front and center. Like in our imagery, the model is sitting comfortably in the sofa with the bag in her lap. And it's just like a natural pose. And those are like small, subtle details that you have to think about and how you want to communicate your brand in terms of like visuals. So going back to your initial question, it's just sit down, think about what you want to communicate and then think about every single touch point. How do you want that to reflect in your images, on your homepage, on your product page? How are your product's going to show against a white background for the generic e-commerce photos, you know, and for us, that's really important. Where does the light come from? Does it come from the top, from the bottom? You know, where do you, where do you actually light it? Uh, what, how is the touch point with the unboxing? You know, what does your box look like? Our boxes are made out of paper from an Italian manufacturer. It's like really high end. It's done really well. Think about the inserts that goes into that box. Think about um, the Facebook ads that that person is going to see. Is it going to be like a powerful imagery of our model? Um, you know, and how is that portrayed? What does a copy actually say in that ad? Um, think about all the touch points. That's kind of how you do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think with the luxury brand too, it's uh, it's you have to spend so much time upholding the the messaging that the brand image that a small you know slip up could very much dilute the brand itself now when you are just a especially when you were just a two person company to start and for anyone out there that is just getting started and wants to build uh, a luxury brand um, how do you know what to focus your your attention on should it be in the product images should it be in the the storytelling like what do, what would you recommend people focus on when they're just starting out and they want to build a, a luxury brand yeah uh, with us what we did we were on a really we were on a shoestring budget too so you know we raised no money and we, we did this with our own savings and the first version of the web page, what we focused on is get nailing the e-commerce photos. So like making sure that they were really nice, like really, really nice, not like shot at home kind of in the white box thing, but like shot by a professional photographer and done nicely. Um, and then less is more. Like when you're launching your uh, first Shopify site, make it really, really simple. Use the simplest template there is to amend. Uh, we have like a really super simple grid so you kind of like land on vineyard.co and then it was like products in two rows. Uh, we didn't have a lot of products. So they were like, it's like one page in two rows. Yeah. That, the, why do you say this? Why do you say that less is more and, and to make your, your site simple? Uh, it's just, it's easier to control every single element mm-hmm. and leave things up to imagination for the, for the visitor, right? So if you just have some very good assets, just make sure that those are in focus and and remove everything else. It's better to have like three high quality photos than 10 pretty shitty ones. So just like, you know, quality, not quantity uh, and and have that reflect on your page too. And uh, yeah, that should take care of it. 
Makes sense. Now, I want to talk about your Kickstarter experience because, of course, plenty of crowdfunding experience. You have an existing uh, crowdfunding campaign going on right now called the Minimalist Bags Without the Luxury Markup. That's the title here. Currently raised $166,000 already. Oh, sorry. Yeah, currently already raised $166,000 uh, pledged with a goal of $51,000. Um, now, talk to us about your previous experience with Kickstarter, though. What, what did you learn from the past crowdfunding campaigns, whether it be on Indiegogo or on Kickstarter, that you knew that these are strategies that you had to apply to the current campaign? Yeah, we, we this is a really good podcast you did actually a couple of uh, months ago or weeks ago with Lumos, um, uh, this smart helmet company, mm-hmm. L-U-M-O-S. Can't remember which episode it is from your podcast, but anyone listening to this should definitely listen to your episode with Lumos. Uh, we use the same tactics as them. So we had a um, pre-launch page um, live and running. Actually, if you Google uh, how two designers raised $100,000 on Kickstarter in less than six hours, you'll find this article article in detail about our tactics and how we actually um, uh, did this pre-launch thing. And we did it a little bit different than Lumos. So basically, we put up a splash page. We A-B tested the... Um, um, the, 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 the copy on that page and the images. And then on top of that, what we did is we added, um, Zopim, you know, that chat software. Mm-hmm. So I'd like Zopim on that page. And we were talking to all our website visitors, just learning what they were asking. And there was enormous com- confusion because our first version had really bad copy. Like everything was kind of clear in our head, but not clear to our visitors. Um, so we we iterated and we improved the copy as we went, and and that helped us kind of nail down uh, a perfect communication strategy for our final Kickstarter campaign page that ended up raising almost a million dollars. So um, I encourage anyone to listen to the Lumos podcast uh, on this Shopify podcast, and then also reading up on this article about how we did it in detail. Yeah, I, I like that. It's like rather than showing up on the stage where it's a live environment and then learning as you go, you want to do all the learning before the time that it really matters, which is the 30 days or however long you're running the campaign for. So the splash page that you created, what does it what does it look like? Do you try to replicate what it would look like on Kickstarter or what's what's on the actual splash page? That's uh, yeah. So that what we do is we we have like this. I mean, we're really really. Uh, we're designers first, uh, we would say, kind of thing, and 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 so it was very much on brand, and it was it did not look in a like a Kickstarter page. It looked like our web page. So it had a simple grid system on the left. There was an image on the right that was copy, and then the inverse on the row below, and then it went on for four or five rows, and um, it just had like the va- the benefits of the product basically. So we we quickly describe you know what made our product different. Um, why it was such good value and, um, you know, the details of like, um, how, um, how it actually worked. So we had interchangeable straps, etc. Um, I mean, we've seen a lot of landing page templates out there and there's also a lot of software that you can, or like yeah. SaaS companies, like, yeah. um, what are, what are, like kickoff labs and lead pages, I think that mm-hmm. where you can easily create a, a landing page, um, to collect leads, um, but and I think that a lot of other templates are a lot higher converting than ours, just because they have more, uh, I guess, more elements that are kind of like salesy mm-hmm. um, than than what we felt we could that we that more than what we felt we could fit within our like design language on our right. website. Um, but but there are a lot of resources out there if you're looking to build um, a landing page. Got it. So this this landing page that you created was it more mostly mostly focused on getting the leads, building the buzz, or were you more interested in learning about how to communicate the benefits of this upcoming project? It was both. Yeah, it was both. I mean, we wanted like a, a big email list before launching. Um, so I think we got two thousand emails through that pre-launch page. Don't quote me on that, but I think that was roughly the number. We had like mm-hmm. 9,000 parts that, so I think by the time we launched, we had like 11,000 emails or something, something around there. And um, and what we wanted to do is nurture that list and not just like say, hey, we're live. So we, we designed this really beautiful drip campaign with 
amazing imagery that we only launched to that list first and then built that like community around you know our launch and then once we went live everyone could see the assets but they had like first dips on like seeing everything and we're in the middle mm-hmm. and they were the same one first about our launch and our early bird pricing so you know they got to grab all of those first I see. So the incentive for them to sign up to onto the mailing list was the early bird, uh, uh, I guess, tier that you have for Kickstarter? Exactly. Got it. Now, did you have to drive any traffic to it or was it all organic from people that were already visiting the, the, the main website? Oh, no, we definitely drove traffic to it. So we, we sat down, we built some audiences on Facebook um, and we uh, built some lookalike audiences around our existing customers on our shop. Um, and um, dr- spend some money driving traffic to that page. Got it. And where was it a discoverable page on your site too? What, did you did you care about that? Do people stumbled onto it without going through some kind of, kind of other, I guess, funnel? Yeah, that, it was hidden actually. So I think we didn't put it in the menu bar or anything. It was hidden. We wanted to make it sound uh, seem, and it was an exclusive launch for insiders only. Mm-hmm. So so we hid it as a. Uh, uh, on the site. Got it. And you mentioned that this a- email list, it wasn't something that, a mistake that I see made a lot of times that people will build this email list in pre- preparation for a launch and then no one will hear from them until a launch date on Kickstarter. All of a sudden they'll send out the email for the first time and everyone's like, who, who is this person? I've never heard of them and they forget yeah. forget about you yeah. already. <laughs> yeah. So what, what did you guys do differently to make sure that you were on top of mind and people were kind of anticipating or building buzz leading up to to the launch through your email list? Yeah, Jen does all our emails. So she built a flow uh, where, you know, you sign up, you get an immediate confirmation email saying like, hey, thank you so much for signing up. Um, here are the next steps. But this is what's going to happen next, basically. And we kind of like built the um, anticipation of like more emails to follow and when our launch date would be. I can't remember if we had our launch date set in stone by then, that time. I think we did. So we also told them like we're launching at this time on this day. Um, and then we followed up with two or three emails about the watch and the benefits. Got it. And we had really high open rates, actually, about 50% for most of them. Oh, very cool. Now, once you once you did launch, was there, for, especially for this existing campaign that's going on right now, what other kind of preparation did you do right up to the launch? What kind of marketing are you doing now that the campaign is still going on? Talk to us about this this experience that you're going through with the, with another Kickstarter campaign. Yeah, so this campaign was really interesting. Um, we... Uh, we basically did the same thing. We we spent uh, we we set up a pre-launch page and drove traffic to it. Uh, so we built up an email list prior to launching. Then the second thing we did was, um, you know, Facebook has you know we gotten a bit more sophisticated with Facebook, so we were retargeting uh, anyone uh, with branded ads of our um, that with like um, the new like brand ads uh, from the new collection, basically like the new imagery. Um, and like driving, you know, people who are familiar with the brand to our campaign page. And that's been really successful for us. Beyond that, we're focusing on press and then we're doing, uh, naturally email campaigns. We're sending one out in the next hours, uh, telling everyone who, who's on our list that we met our, reached our goal within hours. Um, and that we're on track to hopefully do a million dollars again. Um, so, you know, those are the main three things that we're doing. Some Facebook ads, but press and, and emails. Awesome. And you mentioned, uh, Jen, that she or Jen, that you created the, the email marketing flow for, for this campaign. What, uh, what, what software do you use for that? And I guess just tell us what kind of tools and applications that you use to, to help run the business. Yeah, we use Klaviyo. Um, it's been for, for our emails. Um, it's been really great because you can create um, flows, which are just like series of emails with very smart filters. Um, so you can say, OK, I want to send this to all women who didn't open my last email um, and who looked at this product or something. Well, that That's not relevant for the, the pre-launch <laughs> campaign, but mm-hmm. just to give you an example of how strong these filters are. Um, so that's been great. And then in terms of other software, we uh, we put our team on Slack um, a few weeks ago. Uh, so we have a totally uh, remote distributed team. Uh, it's just Roman and me here and everybody else is just everywhere. <laughs> 
Uh, and Slack has been wonderful for just keeping in touch with um, keeping in touch with everybody and like posting announcements and just chatting. Um, and then finally, we use Front for customer service. And we just migrated a few weeks ago and it's been amazing, just like totally transformed our lives. Um, so I highly recommend Front. Cool. Such a good software. Um, Need to check it out if you're if you're in the market for customer service software. Awesome. So Linear again is the company's L I N J E R dot C O. The the running uh, Kickstarter campaigns live right now is the minimalist bags without the luxury markup. Uh, where do you guys want to see the the business this time next year? What what kind of goals do you have for yourselves for over the next year? That's a great question. You know, our current focus right now is just to make sure. Um, that we we go big with this Kickstarter campaign. Um, so we're we're hoping to, to take that big. Um, or what's what are our goals? We, we just want to grow sales on our site. Yeah, um, we're doing a lot of uh, conversion rate optimization work right now, um, and really investing in content, uh, which we haven't been able to do just because of time constraints. Um, and we're also investing a lot more in different paid marketing channels that we haven't had a chance to pay very much attention to until now. Um, and to be able to do all of this, I mean, it's helped a lot that we've been growing our team over the last few months. And we're also hiring. Uh, we especially need more customer care specialists. Um, so if you're like, in the look for in the in the, in if you need a job, please go to linear.co slash careers. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and check check us out. Uh, we're we're hiring, as Jen said. Well, and the, the best thing about our business is that our whole team is remote. So. Um, you can work from anywhere, um, and the hours are flexible uh, for some of the roles. Um, so yeah, it's a great. It's a we think it's a great place to work, and uh, yeah, we would love to hear from you. Um, nice. What other goals do we have for the business? I guess we just want to be known um, for our quality uh, and like for the for the passion we put into our products. We feel like we're slowly getting there now uh, with Baby Steps. We're getting some good reviews out there. We, we won the Wirecutter uh, Award for Best Leather Briefcase, which was really big for us. Uh, and we're hoping to kind of like get more acknowledgement from respected sites like that. Um, yeah, that's basically it. And then, you know... Um, uh, yeah, that's actually it. <laughs> cool. And for anyone that wants to check out the products for the first time, again, it's L-I-N-J-E-R dot C-O. And Roman, you mentioned that there's a limited time voucher for listeners. That's right. I was going to get to that earlier. Yeah, so we we normally never do vouchers. Um, we only do um, discounts during our Kickstarter campaigns, actually. Uh, but we know we actually often get emails from other entrepreneurs who are like, oh, I need a kick-ass watch for my next investor meeting or whatnot. So we decided to be proactive about this one. So we created a voucher code called Shopify Masters. Um, so that's Shopify Masters. And you can use that on our checkout. Most likely you have a Shopify store, so you know how to apply the, the yeah. discount code. <laughs> so um, yeah, uh, it's going to be valid for the first seven days after the campaign ends. And it will have a 15% off for our watches only. Awesome. Yeah, so we'll put all those details in the show notes as well for anyone that wants to try out these uh, products for the first time. Thank you so much for your time, Roman and Jen. Really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you. Here's a sneak peek of what's in store for the next Shopify Masters episode. I had 350 specialty stores, independent stores around the United States and Canada, and couldn't get a major uh, to pick it up. And Amy and I started doing some like secret shopper. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com slash masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial.